Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Stay tuned today. We have a very interesting, educational, and I think going to be an exciting interview with author Ayelet Waldman on her new book, A Really Good Day. Yesterday, I was walking down the street, and I saw these two folks picking through a garbage can, pulling out uh, metal cans. The, uh, the man had a big bag, a very large bag, almost as big as himself, full of cans, and he was taking the cans out of the, the public garbage and putting them into the uh, bag that he had. Um, I walked over and uh, gave the, gave the, the uh, couple uh, some money and uh, introduced myself and uh, started to initiate a conversation. Uh, before I could get much out of my, uh, out of my mouth, uh, they immediately started talking about their biggest concern in the world. Uh, and what is their biggest concern in the world? Uh, were they going to sleep that night? Where they're going to get their next food, whether the is the weather whether the weather is going to change and rain on them, those were not the topics they wanted to talk to me about. They wanted to talk to me about whether President Trump was going to take away their uh, medical benefits. They wanted to talk about whether the meager amount of money they got from the federal government was going to be taken away. They wanted to talk about whether they were going to lose even more than they already had lost. It was a wrenching conversation with Ralph and Shirley, and this program is dedicated to Ralph and Shirley and all the Ralphs and Shirleys out there who are suffering and who are living in fear as a result of what they believe their president is going to do to them. Well, on to our program. Adult with adult sexual activity and adult drug use are two areas of functioning which bring out, in we Americans, some of our most pain-producing hypocrisy. As it happens, a significant percentage of our adult citizens enjoy what scientists classify as human sexual activity in a wide variety of forms. At the very same time, another significant percentage of our citizens are so deeply concerned about certain adult-with-adult sexual activity that they have successfully created laws prohibiting certain behavior, sexual behavior. The moment the prohibition of certain sexual act laws were passed, our first significant group of citizens, the ones who enjoy certain sexual activities, had to risk prosecution in order to continue some of their favorite activities, which in this case were adult-to-adult sexual. It is undeniable that instantly a percentage of our citizens became outlaws, and another percentage became hypocrites. Some citizens, as has been publicly documented, prosecuted others in order to build cover for what they themselves were engaged in. This group has included congressmen and prominent ministers. You're all aware of those cases. Hypocrisy is a huge loss to our culture. To the extent that we hide what we are actually doing, we're living in fear. Living in fear does not fulfill the dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The area of adult drug use 
is almost identical to our sexual issue. Going back well over 10,000 years and perhaps the beginning of time, if the apple is a metaphor for something a bit stronger, then at minimum, a significant percentage of humans have regularly ingested something which changed their consciousness in ways over time they could predict. And there have been those who were opposed, sometimes violently opposed, to those who ingested these known consciousness-changing substances. Fast forward to the American Revolution, and we have Dr. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration of Independence, father of modern psychiatry, famous and infamous user of leeches in his practice. Dr. Rush was ardently against the drinking of alcohol and is thought to be one of, if not the, originators of what became the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which eventually succeeded in creating legislation prohibiting the manufacture and sale of alcohol. In this case, millions of people engaged in illegal acts written in relation to alcohol. They became outlaws. Others became hypocrites. A side piece of collateral damage was the escalation of power of groups of associated men, presently often referred to as cartels, which may be an elevated way of saying gang, who thrive on laws outlawing behaviors and substances. For these very laws create a monumental business for them by supplying whatever is not allowed, be it sex and or drugs. In fact, outlawing a product which tens of millions of people continue to use has financially fueled cartels, as they're called, all over the world. In 1935, Secretary of the Treasury Andrew Mellon of the Mellon banking family appointed his niece's husband, Harry Anslinger, to be the first director of the Federal, Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Mr. Anslinger is said to have gone on a powerful, racist-driven campaign against Mexicans, Chinese, and blacks. He also went on a virtual crusade against drugs. Physicians lost their licenses to prescribe heroin, cocaine, and eventually dentists lost their licenses to administer marijuana. My own father, a dental surgeon and army colonel, had one of his licenses from the state of New York to be a license to administer marijuana. Eventually, Harry Anslinger went to the United Nations and, using the power of the United States, persuaded other countries to ban certain drugs. Countries were threatened with sanctions if they did not cooperate. I witnessed this in Israel years ago when I went there with a group of scientists led by Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS. Some of you have heard Rick interviewed on this program. The chief of the Israeli Supreme Court told me that their government would like to engage in the research we were proposing on the use of MDMA with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, but they could not do the research for fear of sanctions from the United States government. The fallout from Harry's war on people, purposely sanitized to be called the war on drugs, will be written about for many years to come. Presently, we are experiencing an opioid epidemic, this is a very different situation than we had with Harry's War on People. Our chemically dependent opioid users are not the easy targets 
of black jazz singers smoking marijuana and from Harry's certainty seducing white women, or stealthy Chinese laying in dens of iniquity smoking opium, or Mexicans with black tar heroin. Our opioid addicts are good old boys from the white middle class who began their opioid use with prescriptions from their medical doctors. And as their tolerances increased, their demand rocketed, and they turned to street pharmacies. Some graduated to heroin. Listen to these statistics. Cause of death, 2015. Cigarettes, 480,000 Americans. Alcohol, 88,000 Americans. Opioids, 37,000. Heroin is actually an opioid, an additional 15,000 for a combination of 52,000. Cocaine, 7,000. Just as an aside, suicide with a firearm, 19,000. Homicide with a firearm, 14,000. I should also mention LSD. How many deaths do you think there were from LSD in 2015 as compared to, say, alcohol, 88,000, or cigarettes, 480,000? LSD, deaths in 2015, zero. How about marijuana, deaths in 2015, zero. But back to the war on people. One group of people who were suppressed by Harry's drug wars were scientists. Scientists have not been allowed to do basic research on certain drugs for over 50 years. The suppression of science has resulted in millions of people being deprived, and I underline the word deprived, of medicines which have the potential to change their lives for the better. A small group of scientists persisted and over the course of decades were given permission by our government to do basic research on illegal substances. Most of these scientists have been interviewed on this program. Uh, The interviews, by the way, are on the Mind-Body-Health-Politics archive. Because this small group of scientists had the courage to risk their careers and possibly their very lives, some of their findings have made their way to the general public. For example, some of you know the interview I did with Roland Griffiths, Dr. Griffiths, who was uh, probing results treating depression with psilocybin. Dr. Michael Midhoffer successfully treated PTSD with EMDA, MDMA, and uh, my friend Dr. Phil Wolfson is using ketamine for depression, just to name a few. Now something new has occurred. A very solid citizen, married, mother of four, former federal prosecutor, law professor, policy consultant, and best-selling author, Ayelet Waldman, after many years of being treated with a virtual pharmacopoeia of legal prescription mood-altering drugs, has experimented courageously with the use of microdoses of microdoses. We'll explain what that means. Of the very illegal LSD. She did this to diminish the negative effects, you'll hear from her, of very unpleasant moods, to say the least. And she has the courage, the great courage, to use her abundant including humorous, writing skills to share her findings with us in her most recent of at least 13 public, pu- published books. Her most recent on microdosing is called A Really Good Day, How Microdosing with LSD Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I yell it. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I have to correct you about one thing, however. I was not a federal prosecutor. I was a federal public defender. Two very different things. Two very different things, and I apologize. I said corrected. (laughs) A A public defender, very different things. Ayala, you've had great courage in both of the areas I described in my introduction. You've had this great courage to publish this book about the microdosing, which is going to be our primary uh, discussion topic today. Mm-hmm. But you've also done, in my opinion, some very courageous work in the other area I described, and that's human sexuality. And I want to—I hope that we'll get a chance later on in the interview to discuss your advice to newlyweds, as described in your article, Embrace the Quickie. <laughs> because well, you, you did a deep dive into the Internet to find that one. I Wasn't did. that one in Brides Magazine? I, I, you know, I found it in several pr- places. I was so impressed. I believe that that article makes as significant a contribution to our culture as your book on microdosing. Oh, well, thank you. I think it's very important, and I hope we get to it today. Great. Okay. Give us some background. We know who you are. We know you're a solid citizen. I know that. I know you're the mother of four. I love how you describe how you know, you're walking around in your, in your gym clothing and your regular gal and so on. And then give us some background on how this came about. Well, um, in it, after I was a federal public defender, I, began, I became a law professor. I taught criminal law and constitutional criminal procedure at Loyola Law School. And then when I moved up to the Bay Area, I created a seminar called The Legal and Social Implications of the War on Drugs. And for seven years, I taught initially on my own and eventually with another person, Dan Abrahamson of the Drug Policy Alliance, a seminar that addressed exactly what it says, the various legal and social implications of this current war on drugs that you explained so beautifully in your introduction. And when, um, so I knew a lot about drug policy, and I knew a lot about drug policy reform, Um, but what I didn't know so much about was psychedelic drugs, and I really wasn't very curious about them. I'm not someone who is particularly interested in recreational drugs, though I, you know, smoked a little weed when I was younger. The drugs that I've used have always been for therapeutic reasons, and um, but when you teach law, and when you're a writer, books sort of show up in your house all the time. I mean, they, you're, every time I open the mailbox, there's another pile of books. And a book showed up in my house, and I don't honestly know if I bought it or if it was sent to me. That was a book by James Fadiman, who I know you know, who was a psychedelic researcher in the 1960s, one of the um, founders of Sophia University on the peninsula, and um, a person who's written a lot about not just psychedelic drugs, but also various aspects of um, transpersonal psychology and mental health and spirituality. And this book was called um, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And frankly, when it first arrived, I wasn't particularly interested in it. I'm not a psychedelic explorer. I'm not anyone who has any interest in that at all, frankly. But for some reason that I can't explain, I took the book down from my bookshelf one day when I was in the midst of a very serious depression, and I leafed through it, and I found the chapter on microdosing. And uh, then I went on the internet, and I googled, and I saw Dr. Fadiman giving a lecture at a conference in which he described microdosing, the taking of um, uh, very small doses of psychedelic drugs in order to to achieve a sub-perceptual but 
metabolic effect. And he said that the people who microdosed, they didn't hallucinate. They didn't see things. There were no, you know, kaleidoscopic colors. But rather, at the end of the day, they looked back on their day and they said, oh, that was a really good day. When I heard Fadiman say that, I rewound the video and I played it again and again and again. And um, I just, you know, I, I can't describe how amazing those words were to me. A really good day. You know, I had been so depressed for so long. I had been all but anhedonic. And I hadn't had an inner, I hadn't had a, a good day, let alone a really good day. And um, I just, the possibility of doing this, of, of alleviating the depression that no medication managed to alleviate with something that seemed so simple, just kind of lodged in my mind until eventually I decided to pursue it. I want to uh, explain to our listeners what a microgram is because many of you have taken pills and you take a pill like ibuprofen, for example, and you're told to take 600 milligrams. So 600 milligrams is six-tenths of a gram. Uh, What's a gram? Well, if you open up a little package of sugar that we get in the restaurant or Splenda, one of these little sweeteners, and lay that on the table... That's about a gram. You get an idea of what a gram of little little particles looks like. You take ibuprofen, you're taking 200, 400, or 600, 20, 40, or 60% of a gram. A microgram that I yell at is talking about is one millionth of a gram. And she's talking about taking a microdose of a millionth of a gram. Well, 10 micrograms is the... Um is the sort of the typical LSD microdose. The the typical dose, someone who wants to say, you know, go to Burning Man and dance on the playa, usually takes between 100 and 200 micrograms. Yes. But um, for, so for microdosing, you try to, the the goal is about a tenth of a typical dose. So for me, I, uh, my sweet spot was 10 micrograms. That's where I didn't feel any kind of, um, I didn't feel any, what I tell people is if I flipped you 10 micrograms of LSD, you would never notice, you wouldn't feel anything, you wouldn't notice anything. But at the end of the day, you might look back on your day and say, oh, well, that was a really good day. That was a really good day. Now, to begin with, you are, by everything I've read about you, certainly an outspoken person, but, Mm -hmm. but a very solid citizen public defender, law professor, mother Mm -hmm. of four, published author. How did you feel about doing something that is so illegal that literally, I mean, most likely not, but you could go to jail for it? Yeah, you can go to jail for it. In fact, I hired a law firm to help assess my um, potential exposure when I decided to write the book. And we figured that... um, even though the statute of limitations for the possession of LSD is three years, and I'm comfortable where I, I reside in that statute of limitations, um, the potential exposure I was looking at was about three to eight months if someone decided to prosecute me. But here's the thing about that, and this is why I wrote the book. Um, in this country, drugs are not prosecuted, people are prosecuted. Yes. Drugs are not criminalized, people are criminalized. Yes. As you so eloquently put in your, um, in your introduction, from its very inception, the war on drugs, as begun by Harry Anslinger, and sort of, or 
sort of as amped up by Harry Anslinger and then uh, through Nixon and Reagan and Clinton. Um, that has always been a drug, a, a war directed at very specific populations, at people of color, at Mexican-Americans, at Chinese-Americans, and then eventually with the most ferocity of focus at African-Americans. Yes. So the sad truth is, in, is, that, is that in this country, the person le- least likely to be prosecuted for using drugs is a white person and, you know, a white woman like me, a woman of means. So because I felt so strongly about the injustices of the war on drugs, I didn't feel like I could just do this experiment and keep quiet about it. If I did this experiment and achieved some kind of benefit, it was important to me to write about it, to be open about it, to take a position, because I feel very strongly that, you know, when you spend your life benefiting from white privilege, you have to do what you can to ameliorate the consequences to others. And, you know, a young African-American person, say, in living in Ferguson, would not be able to, like I did, experiment with LSD, fully confident that he was not going to um, suffer any ramifications, and certainly wouldn't feel comfortable publishing a book. So, um, so that's why I, I, you know, that's why I did it because I, I felt, you know, look, Jeff Sessions might prove me wrong, but I felt a certain amount of. Um, not immunity, but the likelihood of prosecution was just so low that I, I wasn't particularly worried about it. In my um, in my introduction, I mentioned, uh, based on my reading your book, uh, that you had taken, over a period of years, a virtual pharmacopoeia of prescription medicine. Oh, absolutely. You name it, I've taken it. In well, fact, I took... Oh, okay, I let's play so... a game. I'll play a game okay. with you, and I'll name it. You tell me if it... Right. Did, did you take um, Zoloft? I did. Yes, I did. Did you take uh, Prozac? Yes, I did. Did you take... I'm going to try to pick one maybe you didn't take. Did you take Luvox? Um, Luvox. You might have hit one that I didn't take. What's, is, what, is there another name for Luvox? Uh, mm-hmm. I'd have to look it up, but that's the, the name. Is that, that Lamictal? Uh, no, no. Did you take Lamictal? Yes, that's I an, did. That's another one. Did you take Paxil? Yeah, uh, no, Paxil I never did because of the, um, you know, Paxil was one of the few that had a black box warning, of course, though it's not any different than any of the others, and they should all have a black box warning. Yes, they but should. But I was anxious about that one. T- t- now you tell me, take a Effectors, few. You took Effexor. Uh, Topamax. Uh-huh. Um, Seroquel, Ambien, Lunesta. Oh, my uh, I mean, you know, Selexa. Lexapro, um, I go on. You know, when, but <laughs> it's so, it, it, I've taken so many, I've been prescribed so many, oh, you know, then I forgot the whole other class, Adderall, Ritalin. You know, I've, I've been prescribed so many drugs that when my friends are prescribed drugs by their psychiatrists or nowadays, which is even more troubling, by their, you know, family care doctors who somehow feel like they have the expertise to prescribe drugs right. that they think are mild but are actually have serious consequences and very side effects. Very serious, very um, people will call me and ask me for the side effects and for the sort of drug profile because they know, but rather than even, you know, Google it, it's just faster to send Ayala to text. Incredible. Incredible. You know, and we, let me be clear, though, for the vast majority of the time, none of those drugs worked or didn't work particularly well. Would, the would period you, of time when drugs, when those medications worked for me was when I, when my diagnosis was adjusted by, um, the uh, a physician who had trained with the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic, which was at first at UCSF and eventually moved to Stanford. And um, the link was made between my mood cycling and my um, hormones. 
and my diagnosis was changed from bipolar 2 or 3 cyclothemia to PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is, you know, for the layman, really, really, really intense PMS. And, um, and for a, quite a long period of time, the treatment that we developed, my psychiatrist and I, um, which is a very common treatment for this disorder, was one week of SSRIs, antidepressants, taken right before my period. And that worked really well. I mean, it, it, there's a, another period of problem in that kind of cyclical PMDD, which is around ovulation in the middle of your cycle, but I would sort of handle that with a, a, the odd Valium or, um, uh, oh, there's more drugs that I've taken, um, or Ativan. But the, oh, you, oh, you got the benzodiazepines yeah, all as those well. Benzos. But um, the, the one week of antidepressants really worked well. In my case, I use a very small dose of Celexa. Are we are we are we open to the possibility that the reason it worked well was the placebo effect? Or you... No, I don't think so. No, because, you think um, it was the you know, medicine. In in PMDD, um, the the SSRI works differently than it does in regular uh, depression. It it acts on the progesterone, and it's an almost immediate recovery effect. So within twenty minutes. The um, the antidepressant acts on the sort of on the on the hormone. They, they interact and the the mood is alleviated. And I know it wasn't a placebo effect because if when I took it when I wasn't in when I had t- when I got my numbers off or my dates off, I didn't feel any sense of uh, relief. And then I would look at my schedule and I think, oh no no, you're a week early. You're you know you're feeling bad for another reason, but you're a week early. But what eventually happened to me is happens to every woman. You know, when I hit my 40s, um, I entered this protracted period called perimenopause, which is the um, years-long sort of build-up to menopause. And one of the features of perimenopause is that it becomes you, your periods become irregular. And my treatment protocol depended on regular prediction of my menstrual cycle. And when I could no longer predict with any accuracy when I was going to get my period, I could no longer time my medications to alleviate the symptoms. And that's when the train went off the tracks. And I became more and more depressed and more and more irritable, which is actually a funny word. Irritable is a word psychiatrists use to describe something that, um, you know, it, the, 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 the way that we use in regular language irritable does not encompass what psychiatrists use irritable for. So, like, irritable if I were to say it to my children, might mean I was a little grumpy, irritable, and psychiatrist terms mean I'm, you know, throwing glasses across the room. And I was irritable in the latter way. Actually, we have three definitions. We have what would be to the children, what it would be to the psychiatrist, and what it would be to your husband. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think his definition was probably closer, a lot close, more closely to, aligned to, to the uh, definition of my psychiatrist. The, yes, throwing things across the room. Yeah, For, so my, like, lay, my uh, irritability just, just like went through the roof, and, and then there's this kind of cycle for me personally, but I think there's something pretty common to people. Like uh, my irritability would cause me to lash out in ways that I was then ashamed of, and the shame would trigger a depression. So it was this constant cycle of lashing out, shame, depression, lashing out, shame, depression. And it just got worse and worse and worse until eventually I was suicidal. And that's when I decided to try the microdosing protocol. For those of you who are listening, there's very important information that Ayala is bringing us. You hear her saying that she took a pharmacopoeia of mind-altering prescription medicines, you heard some of them that she described, including the SSRIs, including benzodiazepines, 
and including the stimulants, Adderall, you heard that. She's saying that none of those were particularly effective enough for her with one exception, and it's important to hear the exception. In her pre-menopausal, in her pre-menstrual cycle, when she could clearly identify the cycle, she did get assistance from an SSRI. And she's saying, because this is a very bright woman who's giving us deep research, and it's, it's, we really want to give it a lot of respect, she's saying that the SSRI, the reason it had a positive effect during, in this one specific area is because the SSRI was working not on her serotonin, not on her neurotransmitters, which we've talked a lot about in this, on this program, but working on her hormone, on a progesterone. So if you take notes on that to discuss this with your doctor, this is an important piece of information. I thank you very much for it. Um, it's really, I, I you know, it. it's, it's very it's, important because I've yeah. been on a, on a harangue for a long time now, ever since I interviewed Robert Whitaker on Anatomy of an Epidemic and then Julie Holland on Moody Bitches about the, the negative effects of these SSRIs on millions of women around the country. And then Julie Holland, psychiatrist in New York City, brings us the information that the the interaction between birth control medicine and SSRIs are playing havoc with, with millions of, of American women and women around the world with their moods. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, you know, that, that's so, people sort of blithely prescribe these very intense drugs, um, you know, to women when they're, when they're um, not effective or, you know, and that they have all these side effects. So, like, here's my favorite thing is that they'll they'll prescribe an SSRI to a woman who's experiencing a week of of depression right before her period. They won't mention the hormonal connection. They won't mention the possibility that there's a relationship between moods and hormones. So she's on a drug for four weeks a month that she only needs for one. And then they will de- denigrate the side effects um, so that the woman feels, like if the the weight gain and the lack of libido have a negative effect on her mood, well, that's somehow her problem. That's just a side effect. I mean, you know, how is the side the the if the weight gain and the the suppression of libido are as much of an effect as anything else? I mean, why we consider those the side effects and the other, you know, theoretically the effects is a mystery to me. Another piece of sanitized political terminology, there's no such a thing as a side effect unless you get something that only happens on your side. It's a a total effect to the human being when you gain weight. I mean, you can imagine someone prescribing Prozac as a tool to gain weight. Definitely. I've had patients gain 40 pounds. We're not sure what this is going to do for your mood. For some people, it alleviates depression. For others, it doesn't. But we know that everybody gets fat. fat, Definitely. Definitely. Well, side effects. Okay, so we're now going to move a little bit forward. You've tried all these things. You do have some relief from an SSRI during the particular menstrual as- aspect that you've described, if you can identify when right. your period is coming, but it gets erratic. And then you read Jim Fadiman's books. Uh, uh, by the way, folks, if, if you want to hear my interview with Jim Fadiman on the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide that I yell at his referencing, it's on the archive. You can hear it. I recommend the book, whether you're interested Absolutely. in psychedelics or not. This is a book worth having. It's like a tool in your toolbox. And and um, Dr. Fadiman is one of the most generous, lovely men I've ever spent time with. Um, you know, when I when I after I I heard him and read read the chapter in the book, I actually reached out to him 
And I never thought he would call me back. Um, you know, I assumed he would be inundated with calls from people in similar distress. But not only did he call me back, but he actually talked to me and helped me understand um you know, helped to ease my concerns about LSD. I had a lot of biases against psychedelics. You know, when I, like I said, I knew a lot about drug policy and drug policy reform, but I didn't know a lot about psychedelic drugs. And I was under the misapprehension that people overdosed on LSD, that people had um, developed LSD psychosis, all of these things that were mythology um, stemming from the prohibition of LSD in the 1960s. And he helped launch me on this period of education that I engaged in before I, I microdosed. I read all of the research I could get my hands on about LSD. I read both medical and scientific research and also um, anecdotal and then more sort of spiritual, theoretical research to make sure that I really knew what I was doing before I tried this experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is really important. You know, a lot of people reached out to me since I began touring about this book and giving interviews. And um, I, the first thing I say to people is first, just read read my book, get it out of the library, and then if you still want to do it, then you know, educate yourself about the drug. There's a lot of material in my book, but there might be more that you want to read about. There might be more that you want to read about safety and risk. And and then once you've made a real assessment for yourself, and once you feel like you done enough research to um, to be sure you know what you're doing, then you can make the decision to do something that is um, illegal and could have, uh, could be, you know, might provide you with some relief, but also might expose you, expose you to prosecution, which is a serious thing, especially nowadays since we've elected the orange-tinted madman to the presidency, and he's appointed the most retrograde attorney general in decades. There's no question that the risk level has increased and there's sure. uh, you know right down to the i shouldn't use the word down let me retract that right to the level of ralph and shirley that i talked about in my introduction mm-hmm. for sure you know people starving on the street are concerned that the president of the united states is going to make their lives even worse that is very serious folks by the way our guest today is i yell at waltman we're talking about her a most recent of over 12 books. It's called A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. It's published by Knopf. I'm sure if you just Google, I yell at Waldman, you'll find it, and you want to read this book. You want to read this book even if you're not interested. She's very funny, got a great sense (laughs) of humor, and describes some of her situations around the house that'll uh, definitely make you laugh. They certainly made me laugh. And and that's part of you know your, your skill, which I love, in, in that you take a subject, you know, microdosing with LSD, and you make an enjoyable book out of it. In addition to the tremendous amount of information, so I thank you for that. Well, I think that's sort of what uh, that's the important thing about being a writer, and also a writer who comes from a you know a layman's perspective, not a scientist. I mean, I, I my goal in writing this book was to explain the science, to explain the neuroscience, to explain the law, to explain the history, but and also the sort of um, the memoir aspects to explain my life, but in a way that was entertaining. You know, there's no point in doing it if someone's just going to get bored and put the book down. So I really wanted, um, I wanted it to be at once serious and thoughtful and well-written, but also entertaining. That was my goal. So tell us a little about how you relayed to your husband that you were going to embark on this 
experience with this medicine that has a reputation, as you pointed out, you could go crazy, jump off a bridge, commit suicide. Turns out all of that is myth. But, you know, what was your husband's reaction? Well, my husband has a, has had I've taken LSD many times. I see. Um, so he was he was never afraid of it, and in fact, he was very encouraging of me. Um, he, you know, when we met when I when I was in college, people used to say with great certainty that if you take LSD more than eight times, you'll become psychotic. <laughs> and I repeated that ludicrous statement to my husband, and he said, "Do I look psychotic to you?" <laughs> so, you know. Um, what it turns out, like the real truth of it is, is that while there are individuals who have um, experienced some negative psychiatric outcomes after taking LSD, that has that has to do with the, their pre-existing conditions. So that an individual, it's all about, like, you know, as we keep saying over and over again when it comes to drugs, it's all about set and setting. Setting is the setting in which you do the drugs, and set is you. So if a person has pre-existing psychiatric conditions, that and takes you know a large dose of LSD, they might experience negative, uh, uh, you know, an unpleasant experience, uh, trip that causes them to have some um, lasting anxiety as a result of it. Um, I'm going to comment on that. I yell it. From my perspective, uh, having experience with this substance, going fortunately back to pre. 1966 when it was made illegal so I had the opportunity with various uh, professional colleagues to take it while it was legal in, in various ways. There really is no such thing as a bad trip. What there is are inexperienced guides. Right. If you have an experienced guide and you have something unpleasant happen, we see that as something good to happen. Why? Right. Because something unpleasant is usually something that's lurking in the recesses of our mind, ready to come out and scare us. Mm -hmm. And so when it does come out in a proper setting, it's an opportunity to heal that underlying unpleasantness so that no longer will have any power. It's Absolutely. an opportunity to get right into it. So when a person's having something negative, we might say, go further into the negativity. I might hold their hand. Somebody or the guide might hold their hand while, you're, while they're doing that. And then get in deeper into this negative until you come out the back door and heal it, and that's the end of its Well, that's power. why we see such positive results from MDMA and also psilocybin. Um, in treating PTSD because of that exact thing. A bit, you know, the research shows that, um, well, PTSD for is, is a disease in a sense of memory. I mean, it's, it's the um, memories get tied to intense physical responses and anxiety responses. And when um, in, at the University of South Carolina right now, where Mike Mittenhofer is doing studies on uh, MDMA and PTSD, they're finding that when they take a drug like MDMA, which um, is an empathogen, which increases feelings of um, warmth and empathy and love, um, and they, they explore those frightening memories, the memories that have triggered the PTSD, but with the aid of that medication, they can um, do the work of processing those memories absent the intense physical and emotional responses um, in a way that is therapeutic, far more therapeutic than any other PTSD treatment. It's really quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. By the and way, I think in a way that's sort of what, you know, uh, you know the, I think that's the microdose. This, microdosing is not that kind of deep psychedelic experience. But my, I did this one-month experiment, microdosing, and when I reflect on the experiment, and the, um, the most important thing to say is that it alleviated my depression immediately. 
Um, which is not to say that I think that I'm never going to be depressed again, but for that, that depth of depression, which I had never experienced before, was alleviated by the month of microdosing. But I think That's enough is, to make you cry. I mean, yeah, I mean, it really? certainly was enough to make me cry oh, and definitely. my family. I mean, it was, it was very dramatic. It was one day to the next. But I think the most important effect in the long term for me was that it allowed me room and space. When I was microdosing, I was less reactive. And the thing about being reactive is that, you you know, there's a negative stimulus. You react immediately. And then, as I described earlier, there's this kind you lash out, and then there's this shame spiral that leads to depression. And the microdosing just kind of slowed me down. For lack of a better word, it allowed me to be mindful about my emotional responses to things. So I had the capacity to rather than react immediately to negative emotional stimulus to rather consider for a moment what how I was going to make things not worse not necessarily better but if my reaction was going to make things worse i had a moment to consider whether you know taking a few breaths and calming down before acting might not be a more sensible response than acting i can't tell you how many times i um i Craft, I, I dashed off an angry tweet in response to something and then erased it before posting it. Did you say tweet? Tweet, yeah. Tweet? I mean, the big Twitter word, tweet? Twitter is this, this like, terrible place for me because Twitter is this, Twitter is like this, um, you know, it's a drug. It, it, it immediately allows you to indulge your basest impulse. And um, and it gets me, it got used to get, it still probably does get me in terrible trouble. You know, when my, 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 my basest impulse is rarely something I'm proud of. And um, uh, when, when microdosing, I would feel that impulse. I might even act on it for a moment. But then this voice in my head, my wise mind, would say to me, you know what, is that, gonna, is that tweet going to make things better yeah, or worse? Yeah. And that's remarkable. Yeah, that I is mean, remarkable. To enhance the capacity for reflection, to enhance the capacity for using the tools of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I had been in for a long time but had been very ineffective at taking advantage of, that is, that's a remarkable gift. And it I, I lo- my- by the way, that was very diplomatic, the way you just said that, a diplomatic way <laughs> that you said, I, I, I didn't take advantage of the therapy. I, I li- <laughs> because <laughs> another way of looking at it is maybe the therapy is ineffective and you were doing the best you could. But, I, we, but, but we- <laughs> you know what? When I was microdosing, the therapy was really effective. That's right. Well, that's an you interesting know? connection there. By the way, I want to come back to something else you said, and that is that when you went from the depression and all of a sudden it wasn't there and you looked at the end of that day and said it's a really good day isn't didn't one of the things and correct me if i'm off here but didn't isn't one of the things that happened to you is that you got a renewed sense of hope absolutely because because what, you, know, that's, you, you could think... see it was possible right. to have something work and for you to feel right and one of the features of depression is that you feel like you've always been depressed. Right. You're never not going to be depressed. Right. Even if you know that you have a mood cycle and that you cycle in and you cycle, mood, mood disorder and you cycle in and you cycle out, even then, um, I would, I used to, and I still sometimes do, I, I'll ask my husband, things that I, I haven't always felt this way, right? I haven't always felt this bad. And he's sort of my check and he'll say, no, you were in a really great mood last month or you felt really hopeful yes. about this project. And, you know, what you lose when you're depressed isn't I mean the, the terrible thing is not that you lose 
hope is that you lose the perspective of ever having been hopeful. That's right. And the microdosing allowed me, even in days where I felt crappy, which happens, it allowed me to understand that that was a day. Like, for some reason, for whatever, whatever, you know, effect that LSD does, it attaches to your 5-HPT2A, 5-HTP2B, whatever. Whatever. Whatever it does, what it re- for me, what it, the most dramatic thing that it did was it allowed me to recognize that a day is just a day. Yes. And that I would have another one. And that one might be really good. Yes, because depression is relentless in its negativity. Absolutely. And it's taking, and that's why I wanted to come back to the word hope, because depression takes away the word hope. And it feels like Absolutely. it's relentless and it's forever. And that's why, you know, that's why I really do think that suicidality is, is a disease of hopelessness. It's yes. When you no lo- when you no longer have the capacity to hope for a, a better a better day or yeah and, just a and, better day. You I... know it, it's it. This is you know one of the most interesting statistics that I cite over and over again to people is a recent research study that um, it's not causation; it's about correlation. But uh, experience with LSD has been correlated with a decrease in suicidality, a decrease in suicidal ideation and suicidal attempts and, sui- and successful suicides. That's a pretty remarkable thing. And it, it, it's such a testament to the viciousness of our war on drugs that we know of a drug that at least there's a, co- a correlation between this drug and lowered risk of suicide, and we're not investigating it. We're not doing the research. That's right. We're not studying this. No. I mean, can you imagine with the suicide rate that we have in the United States, there should be tens of millions of dollars spent on figuring out what it is about LSD that makes people less likely to commit suicide and, you know, making it available to individuals who are experiencing that level of hopelessness. And instead, we have a situation for where over 50 years, the United States government has suppressed research at the very highest university levels. Absolutely. And the suppression of the research, although it's opening up a little tiny bit, there is some going, some research on LSD going on. It's very unfortunately still being oppressed, and it's being oppressed for totally irrational, unscientific, sometimes racist, sometimes religious reasons. And that's what we have to live with. It's very yeah. sad. And it's only going to get worse. You know, we, have, we saw a oh. recent uptick in these, um, I'm sure you, you, know, you said in your intro you've had some of these researchers on. Um, there's been research at NYU, at UCLA Harbor, at um, Johns Hopkins. On, Roland Griffiths. Yeah, exactly, on the, um, the effectiveness of psilocybin, which is, you know, a, a very similar to LSD. Well, the big problem with it, the issue with psilocybin is very clear right now, and that is, Roland Griffith showed one administration of psilocybin one year later testing and pre-testing one year later the positive effects on depression still lasted what that says to the pharmaceutical companies is hey they've got a medicine you can take once for a year what's going to happen to our medicine what's going to happen to our medicine that you have to take 365 days a year we're going to lose out market share and that's what we're dealing with yeah the connection between corporate interest and the criminalization of drugs is I mean you know you say my father's an old Trotskyite, and so I've always. It's funny you mention that. I was to, just thinking of Karl. I swear, on just at that moment, I was thinking of what Karl Marx would be saying about exactly. what you just commented on, because capitalism is behind a lot of what we're talking exactly. about. Here. You know, and it's so funny because I'm so loath to speak in those terms because of my dad. But you know, it is unavoidable. The connection between the might of the pharmaceutical industry and 
drugs like MDMA, like psilocybin, which you cannot patent, um, there's just, you know, it doesn't, obviously there's a connection and obviously there's a reason that our schedule, you know, schedule one, I tell people schedule one, um, a schedule one drug is a drug that has no medical usefulness and is um, exceptionally dangerous. So what are some of the drugs on schedule one? Heroin. Um, we know that you know opioids have medical. Uh, the people we use med- opioids all the time for for different pharmaceutical applications. But yeah, yes, anesthesia. I would argue that uh, that heroin is exceptionally dangerous. Something like twenty five, twenty four to twenty five percent of individuals who use heroin go on to to abuse it and uh, or to develop a dependency. And nowadays, that often means they end up dead. But seven thousand you know, a year compared yeah, exactly. to four hundred and eighty thousand from cigarettes and eighty eight thousand exactly. from alcohol and zero from LSD. Right. So, but but nicotine, for example, that's not on that schedule. So <laughs> let's think about that. Like the statistic you just cited. No, we know. Or what, what that's about, about marijuana? You find me a person who's ever in the history, the thousands year history of consumption of marijuana, ever died. No, we have zero deaths. Yeah, but that's on Schedule 1. It's madness. I'm going to cut you off here because I promised myself that I'm going to talk to you about something else. We have a few. We have actually, we have 10 minutes left, and I do want to get into it. Okay. Folks, read Ayala Waldman's book, Microdosing. A Really Good Day is the name of it, How Microdosing Made It Make a Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, My Life. You'll enjoy the book whether you're interested in this or not. I did get one question here handed to me that I want to ask you about LSD, and then we're going to go on to um, embracing the quickie. Um, We're talking about microdoses. We're talking about a millionth of a gram. How did you make sure that you took the right tiny dose and not too much, because a lot of people are going to hear yeah, this and say, really an oh, my God, what happens if I take too much? I'll be in a hyperspace. Right. So a lot of, you know, some people, uh, the easiest thing to do, and again, I am not Jeff Sessions, encourage anyone, and encouraging anyone to engage in illegal behavior. Let's make that very clear. Same here. So, um, but the easiest thing to do that I am is to dissolve the LSD, if you don't receive it, if you don't have it in liquid form, in um, distilled water, tap water has chlorine in it. Chlorine uh, 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 causes LSD to deteriorate. But to dissolve it in distilled water, and it, you know, you do a very simple calculation. You sort of decide, like, what, what's your, what's your, um, you take your 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 single dose of LSD, you dissolve it in ten parts water, whether a part is a dropper full or a cup full or whatever it is, ten drop parts water, and then one part is. Um, a tenth of a dose. Um, again, you know, people, it, it, LSD deteriorates in the light, so people often keep their LSD, you should keep your LSD in the dark. Okay, you keep it in a brown bottle, you keep it in the dark, you don't put chlorine into it, and, and you and, dissolve it but again, ten you know, to one, but should, you read his book, right? right. And you, it's and the in the book. And that's important to know about this is, is that, you know, people shouldn't have to take, they shouldn't have to be engaging in home experiment, chemistry experiments right. to take a medication that helps them. We should be able to go to the drugstore <laughs> and buy a microdose of LSD. Whoop, something happened. I got disconnected. Just got a dial tone, nothing else. Please help. Hello? Dead. 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 
Got the phone number? Ready? 510-654-6804. Got it? 510 510- Again? Hi. Hi. So we're going to let go of this topic. Great. A really good day. And I'm going to tell a little story to introduce the next part. Great. Ayelet's having a wedding in her living room. She's got this beautiful young couple. She has her four children, her husband. I don't know how many other family members are there. In her words, I turn to the flushed and joyful faces of the bride and groom, and from the vantage point of 18 years of happy marriage gave them all the wisdom I had. Embrace the quickie. Tell us about embracing the quickie, I yell it. Well, first I should tell you who that bride and groom were because it's kind of exciting. Okay. It was Neil Gaiman and his wife now, Amanda Palmer. Neil Gaiman is a best-selling writer. I think his book is right now number one or number two on the New York Times bestseller list, author of American Gods and Amanda Palmer is his wife is a musician and singer, uh, initially of the Dresden Dolls, but now on her own. So Amanda and Neil were getting married, and there, you know, Amanda, Neil had been married before, So, um, but, but that is the advice I give all newlyweds, be they 25 or 45, because my, um, I feel like lots of things conspire to make couples lose intimacy and lose particularly sexual intimacy and um you know this is especially true if couples have children whether they be straight couples or gay couples when you have children children seem to me to be these um you know very effective intimacy destruction tools (laughs) you know they crawl into your bed just at the wrong moment they um they make you exhausted so i think that that you have to sort of go out of your way to keep the romantic, intimate, sexual part of your life alive. And I find that um, that if you turn sex into this thing that takes, you know, when you're young and you have all night, that's exciting and wonderful and magical. But when you have a baby, say, or another kid, or even when you have just a demanding, the, you know, the demands of adulthood, taking all night can seem daunting. And, you know, there might be vacations where you have that kind of time, but you don't actually mostly in your day-to-day life have the luxury of embarking on a four-hour experience and losing four hours of sleep. So I always say that sex is a shortcut to intimacy. That's what it is. I mean, it certainly has been in my marriage. It doesn't always act like that, but it can be, especially if you're in a loving, committed relationship. And... um, if you allow yourself to have that shortcut in small doses, you will get the benefit of the intimacy without having to, without it seeming like such a daunting task. I mean, you know, you can do anything for 10 minutes. You could do anything for five minutes. So if you say to yourself, all right, I'm going to get my night's sleep, but I'm just going to have this five-minute experience, I promise you it will end up 
enhancing your relationship. Now, I want to tell our listeners why I came to this today, in, uh, in addition to your book, uh, Really Good Day. And the reason is, this is what, what Ayelet is saying here is radical, and it's different from what most of the therapists in the United States are saying. So often you hear from people as well as therapists, you got to work out the feelings first, and then you'll be able to get into bed. And if you have feelings that aren't there or this or that or the other thing, you won't be able to have sexual intimacy. What Ayelet is saying, even though she agrees, and you'll see it in her article, that she loves a foot massage, a back rub, French kissing, and all that, she does. She's not against any of that. She's saying, take it when you can get it. And I agree with her. Yeah, I totally, absolutely. after 50 years of working as a clinical psychologist, I fully agree with her. Take it where you can get it. A quickie does count. You don't, and not only that, where I think I yell it is so right, is I think these little quickie intimacies can transcend these so-called terrible feelings because you said, I said, she said, I did, you did, and all those little petty things that we fight about because you're intimate, you're locked into it. And that, I, you know, it's in a sense, it's so funny because, you know, people people always wait till they're in the mood to have sex, and I get it. You know, I mean, but the wonderful thing about being a woman, frankly, is you don't. If you want to wait until the mood, you're in the mood, you can. But you don't necessarily have to, and that's why I, I always feel like, um, for me, it's a lot like writing. I don't wait for the muse uh-huh. to hit. I just get to work every day. And eventually the muse does hit and everything goes wonderfully. And sometimes it doesn't and maybe it's less than wonderful. But I always got my work done. And you get and something done. maybe that's done. what gives me the capacity to do that in intimacy as well, even though, you know, when my libido is shot by breastfeeding. And I just say to myself, you know, let's just get to work and see what happens. Let's just get to work and, and see it, what happens. Let me stop you right there. It's okay. a great place, I yell it. Did you hear what she's saying? Give it a try, folks. What do you have to lose? Are we telling you to put some kind of knives under your toenails? No. Give a quickie a chance. Read Ayelet's book. Take a look at Jim Fadiman's book. Thank you so much for being with us today. I know you've got to get to a plane. Thanks for being with me. Sorry about the technical problems. I'm glad it was good. It was a delight to talk to you. Have a lovely day. And I look forward to meeting you and your husband sometime. If you get up to the coast, give a jingle. We'll have you over the house.